This is the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. Did you know that over 85% of cybersecurity breaches happen due to human error? Employees at organizations across the world are too often looked at as the problem instead of the solution. The Living Security Human Risk Management Platform leverages behavioral science, gamification, and a Hollywood-style production to provide training that is 16 times more effective than its competitors. Living Security can help your organization turn your biggest asset, your people, into your best defense against cybersecurity breaches. Check out Living Security by visiting livingsecurity.com to learn more. Thank you, Living Security, for sponsoring this episode. Welcome back to the Hacker Valley Studio Podcast. On this show, we like to explore topics in and outside of cybersecurity. We like to think of ourselves as multidisciplinary, and we love to speak to guests that are of a similar mindset. This episode, we speak to Maxie Reynolds, She schools us on how subsea data centers relate to hacking and talks us through the hacker's mindset. Let's jump right into this episode. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again. And this episode, we're joined by a very special guest. In the studio today, we have Maxie Reynolds. Maxie is the author of The Art of Attack, Attacker Mindset for Security Professionals, and founder of Subsea Cloud, focused on underwater data centers, which I'm so excited to hear about. But more importantly, Maxie, welcome to the show. Thank you. This is, um, I like your sort of category of um, topic just now. It's like Shark Week for offensive security. It's great. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And you know what? It's almost like we planned this, but your book just came out, The Art of the Attack. We're focused on the mindset of a hacker. So we couldn't be more thrilled to have you on. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, we'd love to hear a little bit about your background and what you're doing today. Okay, so I started out as a, a ROV pilot, an ROV pilot, remotely operated vehicles pilot and subsea engineer. And I'd done that for about 10 years and I, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. I was on and off of oil platforms and vessels and trips and all, all of that. It was really, it was a good time in life. I had zero responsibilities. It was great. And then I managed to get a degree in computer science when I was offshore because I was offshore for a decade so I ended up with a couple of long distance degrees and as the day rate started to drop I was looking for sort of new work you know I'd been I'd been a subsea engineer for 10 years at that point and I was there was no place else for me to go and not much else for me to do so I went to Australia Perth Australia for a couple of years and a large tax auditing firm of all places taught me cybersecurity they taught me network pen testing and I was I was actually on their graduate team but I was about 30 at the time so there was just me and a lot of 21 year olds and me just like smacking my head off of brick walls because 21 year olds have got the like the mental energy that is needed for life but apply in all the wrong areas (laughs) and I was just sort of 30 with a little less mental energy but 
having to try a lot harder than them so but that was also a lot of fun and then I come back to Los Angeles had a base here for for a long time came back and I started a pen testing company I it was it was catering to high net worth high profile individuals and it kind of wasn't enjoyable if I'm honest it was it was tedious and Mm. it just wasn't good I didn't like it and I'm actually not that great at network pen testing so it wasn't just it, it wasn't great and then it was time to move on and now I am. Um, I've just funded. I went out to invest. I went out begging. Essentially, I got investors in for subsea data centers. So I'm literally taking data centers and placing them underwater at about 800 servers at a time, and it's an exciting project. But it should be this paradigm shift in terms of how data centers are with latency, with cooling, with carbon emissions and all of these things. So it's exciting, but it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so I'm doing that just now. That is a lot going on. And I can only I imagine <laughs> how many times you had to relearn the new things, right? Like penetration tests and yes. social engineering and now subsea engineering, <laughs> all of it. You know, I'm terrified. This is, this is uh, off brand and almost off topic, but they're related, I swear. I'm terrified of of getting some like brain <laughs> disease and so everything I read is like take vitamin d and learn new things all the time both of which mm. I do <laughs> right. and I'm terrified of not having my sort of mental faculties and I don't know if it's like this for you guys but I notice my brain declining <laughs> and I'm still mid-30s so so yeah so that's why I'm always trying to learn new things always and subsea data centers are currently that and we'll see how that goes <laughs> if you so, lose data like in two years time it's probably me and i'm really sorry <laughs> <laughs> so on that note i think you have a lot to teach us and your book is also all about the attacker mindset you've had to go from social engineering penetration testing yeah. subsea data centers so you've had to shift your mindset so many times it's the same mindset if i'm honest it's it's the same mindset just applied attacker mindset i use every day for for subsea data centers it's a way of taking in information and just applying it to your circumstances and your environment but you know when we are doing things offensively in security you take information in in, the, in a way that is not intended by the source and that's the real key of it it's just I will, I'll try to give you an example. So, or a couple, as a social engineer or a network pen tester, if I hear that a company is having an event day and, you know, bring your family and kids, most people go, okay, well, I'm not at a company. I'm not going to go to that. And I think, oh, there's a way in. This is perfect. I can, I can sneak in there. I can take my nephew sort of thing. Or um, if you hear that a company is merging, you know, most people just think, okay, so let's say Chase is merging with Bank of America. If that could ever happen, that would be awful, but imagine it did. Then everybody hears two companies coming together because that's the information that's been given out. An attacker hears a vulnerability. They hear something different and they apply it as such. So it's it's an interesting mindset because you can use it in any facet of life. Lawyers use it all the time. They they say something like there's two truths there's your truth my truth and then there's probably the actual truth and that's kind of the same for attackers 
I hear information and I just use it in a different way, the same as a lawyer does. They hear the victim side and they spin the information so the victim remains the victim and vice versa, you know? So it's it's an interesting mindset. We're talking about mindset and how like you could actually shift from one area to another really easily, especially with the hacker's mind. Yeah. But what does mindset mean to you exactly? I feel like for me, when I listen to the term mindset, I typically think of fixed and growth mindset, but I think it could actually mean something different for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I actually, that is typically what people, it's a, it's a really good example. That is typically what people think of when they hear the word mindset. But as an attacker, you continuously have to sort of mold and um, sort of shift. You're you're almost a shapeshifter a lot of the time. And so the mindset one of the the base stems is curiosity and if you have curiosity and you're persistent with that curiosity you're always going to be changing and that sounds sort of grandiose in terms of well apply that to life and I just sound like you know I'm spouting platitudes but if you put that and look at it through the lens of an attacker you you're taking in information about this environment all the time and it changes how you walk through it how you treat it and how you present yourself so the mindset itself isn't fixed it just has these boundaries and sort of parameters that we operate within but the mindset itself is is always shifting because the environment's always shifting and security is always shifting you know i'm so glad that you mentioned that curiosity standpoint Because that's a large section in your book, that curiosity, yeah. persistence, and agility. Yes. You know, And I can almost sense that that's something that came up much earlier in your life. Maybe it was be- when you first got into the workforce, but maybe it started even sooner. Where did that curiosity really peak in your, in your life? When did it peak your interest in that tinkerer's yeah. mindset? When did that start for you? And what's the story about that? So I hope I've not peaked in curiosity. I really, really pray for that. But I think I've always been curious and it was always encouraged. So I don't know if there's like a curiosity gene. I don't know if it's heritable, but I was always curious. I was always interested. And I think most children are. I think most children are curious. And then the older you get, almost the lazier you become. And that's a kind of a gross word to use, but the lazier-ish you seem to become. That didn't happen to me. And I think that because I've always bounced from environment to environment, but being interested in those environments, the curiosity sort of couldn't dampen. And the other thing I'll say, and like for those who don't feel super curious, my base principle is that everything is interesting enough if you get into it deep enough. So God, there's a there's another podcast called In Our Time and it's by uh, Melvin Bragg and it's a BBC one and he does completely different topics like the spectrum is is wide and ranging and he does like ones on glass sand you're and you're thinking God would you ever read a book on sand or glass but it's <laughs> infinitely interesting it's it's just you have to get into things a little deeper to find you know, to pique that curiosity more and more and more. So I think everyone has a baseline curiosity and mine's probably is a little over what is average, but not completely the other side of the bell curve. Although I would like it to be and I push for it to be because it's it's sort of a muscle. I think you can increase your curiosity, but the other thing that you you really need with curiosity is persistence. You can have all the curiosity in the world, but 
if I was you know like I just said I listened to podcasts on sand and glass and there was one on like flowers it's not interesting to everyone but if you add persistence in there then that curiosity starts to pay off so I'm not infinitely curious about sand or glass or flowers or any of those things but I'm very interested in data centers so that curiosity is met with persistence and then it begins to pay off and that's the same that an attacker needs to be you can't just take in a few bits of information about an environment and think that that will do you you've got to remain curious all the way through the job you've got to remain curious about the environment the people the assets everything and you know it should excite you a little bit I personally get sort of a little adrenaline rush when I'm there now I lose time. Like I could sit on my computer OSINTing a company and it could, five hours can go by, but it feels like one. So there are some indicators of what you're curious about and it's typically time. And that brings you to the the persistence like you were just talking about. You know, we often say that the defenders have to be right every time and the Mm. attacker only has to be right once. And even in persistence in the day-to-day life, you just wrote a book. That is Mm -hmm. not an easy endeavor for anyone. So would love to hear a challenge that you were going through when you were putting this book together. (laughs) And then how did you come out on the other end? Uh, So um, Wiley gave me eight weeks to write that book. And at first I set set out on that book and I was so confident. I was overconfident. I was over cocky. And I was like, easy. Because like it exists already within my mind. I'm just typing it quickly out onto paper. And, but like midway through, I thought, oh my God, I'm going to have a mental breakdown. Like this is, Mm. how do people do this? And I was looking at my peer set and thinking, how are you doing this? How is, is it Cheryl Sandberg, the woman from Facebook? Like, how is she doing her job and writing books? And I was starting to think, oh my God, like maybe I'm just not as sharp as I thought I was. Maybe I don't have as, as much mental energy as I thought. And then it turns out, yeah, I was just really tired. So I took like a three day nap and then I got back to it. So it was really difficult. But what I will say is that I, um, I've only had good feedback about the book and I cannot read myself. I tried to open a page just randomly <laughs> and I read a paragraph and it's like, oh God, no, that oh no. And I <laughs> closed the book. And, it, and the thing is they sent me 50 copies and I've got like four family members. So I've got... 50 copies oh, just wow. stare me do you guys want a copy i can send you a copy absolutely no problem i have a digital copy <gasps> but we would love it perfect send us a signed copy perfect. yeah signed copy only it will take it <laughs> fine so yeah it was really difficult but i'm very curious about the how others will take in this mindset and i i i was sort of adamant to that i was going to finish it because i'd started it and i one of my life mottos, I suppose, is that, hey, if you can do it, you should do it. If there's, you know, no good reason for you not to do something, then the baseline is do it. So there was really no reason for me not to have written that book. And so I, I got through it and I don't know if I would like to do it a second time this year, <laughs> but in the future, maybe well, let's see, I'll, I'll maybe uh, write one on subsea data centers at some point. But yeah, it was a... Uh, it was a stretch, but it, I feel sort of, I feel proud to have written it and to have my peers say that they like it. Eight weeks is really quick. So kudos on you for being able to knock that out so quickly. 
Well, if you don't want to write a second book, you can always jump on the podcast, share your thoughts. It takes a lot less time. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And I'm sure you had a a great opportunity to get the current state of not only the mindset, but even of security. You know, when you look at that and all the work that you put into the book, what are your expectations or predictions on the future of security? What kind of things do you think are going to go on? So... Let me sort of start here. I'm semi-new to Twitter. I've had an account for a long time, but I've just recently started using it. And I saw two things on there recently that are sort of in line with this. One was that someone had said, you can take, you know, a network pen testing course and just all of those offensive courses, and you can do it for a relatively good number in terms of what most people can afford but if you want to go into defense or defer and 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 things like that you're ten thousand dollars more so i thought that was an interesting point i kind of sat back and thought is that true because i went to sans for instance for both network pen testing and for digital forensics I went to Offsec, like all of these different things. So I I kind of have a good balance between the two. But when I started thinking about the costs for each side, I think it is more expensive to go into defense. And so um, I hope that that, if it's true, and again, it's like fairly anecdotal, but if that's true, I hope that 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 changes and we get more and more people into defense that have a good understanding of offensive security and security measures so that's one and then someone put out a poll recently on twitter that said like do you think we'll have red teams and blue teams going forward or do you think we'll sort of merge into these into this sort of purple team environment and i think that trends continue typically a trend will stay in for for a long time and i think that we will have two sets of teams always and we'll specialize and we'll continue to specialize. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I think the missing link is the sharing of information between those two teams. Mm -hmm. Those teams become adversarial. And it's one of the things that you complain about when you're in security, you complain that the environment that you're going into is not thankful for your sort of help in, in pointing out the vulnerabilities so we say that about businesses but we are actually doing that just in-house we're doing that to one another within the industry blue team against red team unwilling to share information through a lot of companies and things like that so I, I hope that that changes um and then otherwise I think that the general population is becoming far more educated um in terms of the information that they are taking in about security and and it, you know it's things like facebook cambridge analytica and things like that that help people become engaged and understanding data what is important about data how it is valuable what it can really do so i think that with people starting to become more interested that we'll see um good things happen for security You know, that makes me think of, so I've led purple team engagements in the past. And sometimes what I would do is I'd have a blue team member even sit in on the planning stages for a red team. And Mm -hmm. they would sit there, they would just be an observer, just seeing how they Mm -hmm. think, what are some of the holes that they're looking for. And we saw a lot of value in some of that stuff, even all the way through like having like a blue team or kind of sit and audit 
the red team because that that's transactional, right? You're getting a little bit and then at the end you can give a lot. So I yeah. think that there is room for there to be like a, a cohesive purple team. Yeah. But I do think you're right in that there's a difference in mentality. And sometimes yeah. it just doesn't see eye to eye, just like IT and security. Do you yeah. think that there is a model to bring both of these worlds together in a cohesive manner that would be beneficial for the, the entire company and for the security posture? I do think it would be good. I don't know if I'm the person to recommend how that <laughs> happens. You know, I have a, a good friend, a large company who runs the red team. And his big complaint is that whenever he performs or executes on some of his items, he's immediately given some shade, thrown some shade from the blue team. And I, I just don't understand it. But if there was a way to sort of take the two top people take the ego out of it and just have them talk about what is best for the company it's like it's like parents it's like two parents just arguing over the kid and you, at the end of the day it's got to be what's best for the child it's the same with companies and I don't have kids so I don't really know if that's how it works in parenting <laughs> but I assume that that's right <laughs> and I think that's it should be about the same for for businesses so I don't want to go too long without asking about the underwater data center yeah. topic. And I want to know a little bit more about it because yeah. was it the social engineering and penetration testing aspects mm -hmm. that made you think, hmm, we need to start putting our data centers underwater so no one can break into them? Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, yes, it was. It was, it was the most sort of perfect combination of the two sort of largest career paths that I've walked down. So social engineering and, and subsea engineering sort of came together and I was like, oh, like it was like a magical moment. There were unicorns around the background. There was rainbows. It was beautiful. I was just thinking like, this is, I've, I'm on to something here. So I, so I quickly, well, not quickly, but over a few weeks, I designed these centers. I had help from another subsea engineer who was really sort of integral to it. He, he gave some good pointers and we can laugh about that in a little while. Um, and I had thought to myself, God, these are designed to they're depthed to 12,000 feet you can't dive that far and the furthest a submarine can go is about 300 feet so physically they are far more secure than our their on-land counterparts so I was really sort of happy about that and it's an interesting topic both in terms of security and just data because what it does for data is it takes out the latency um, it reduces by putting subsea data centers just off the coasts where 50% of the population dwells, you reduce latency by about 98%. And it's just obviously comes down to how fast signals travel and they travel about 200 kilometers, I think per millisecond. And so reducing the latency is a huge business driver for me. But on top of that, there's a carbon aspect, um, which you know, of course, 40% of all power used in data centers is for cooling. And I eliminate that need by putting them subsea. So there's a good carbon aspect. And then comes social engineering. The physical aspect is just, it just really is very helpful. There's no way I'm swimming out there. There's no job. There's no amount of money. There's no amount of like shouting a boss could do that we could get me to like swim into the 
Pacific, where I'm fairly <laughs> sure there's sharks, and um, and do this. So, so of course there are nation state attacks, and there are just countries and groups and organisations with enough money in the bank to hire a ship, go offshore, and pluck it from its place on the seabed. But we will be notified of that quite quickly with all the sensors and devices that we have. And then just like any other data center, we're protected network-wise by third-party companies typically. So it's interesting and I like that it still overlaps a little bit with my earlier career. When you're thinking about the attacker and the nation states that are going to be looking for these data centers, obviously they would have to observe that data center being placed there or detect them somehow. And in your book, you talk a great deal about observation and you offer Mm -hmm. some incredible tips about observation because I do think it's a practice skill that you have to develop, whether on the defensive or the offensive side. What are some of your philosophies on observation and how to get good at it? Observation is an... observation is an innate skill we all have that we all observe things from time to time i think really the key to observation for an attacker and for that mindset is training your brain to zone in on what's important and i think someplace in the book i give an example which is basically hey if we didn't have house numbers and we had to rely on the color of the door, the hue of the door, the shade of the door to get to our friends' houses or our family's houses throughout cities. It would be hard. I don't know how we do that, but let's just say it was the case. That's what my brain would look for. That's what I look to observe. But that's not the case. So I walk into my friends' houses all the time. I could not tell you what color their door is. But if I wanted to train my brain to think that way, to see that, then I could. So it's sort of focusing your attention where it needs to be. So that's like the main thing with with observation. You can do it. You just have to teach yourself what's important to to look for. And for a social engineer, those are things like exit points, which you you don't really typically remember, right? Why do you need to know that? You're always going to go in the front door as a visitor, but not as a social engineer. So you have to remember the exit points. You have to look at people, how they're walking, observing them that way, observing, you know, their eye contact, how busy they seem. Are they going around the perimeter are they lazy and at their desk like there's certain things that you have to observe and honestly with some of them you might never know if you're right or wrong it's just getting into the habit of it so I might have been scoping one security guard and then just before I enter he goes the shift changes and I might have had all of these preconceived notions about him that oh, I think he's maybe getting divorced because he's got a a line on his finger, a tan line on his finger, his clothes aren't ironed, his hair's a little bit long, he's got some scruff. I might never know if those things are true. Even if I do interact with them, I might never know that they're true, but I'm starting to look for those things because they tell me something. So it's observation is really interesting because it's, it's more about focusing your attention than it is learning a new skill. Mm, I like that a lot. And Max, I'm about to put the entire offensive mm-hmm. world on your shoulders right now. Great. I, I, I'm <laughs> sure that there are defenders that are listening to this podcast right now, and they just don't understand the mindset of the offensive hacker. Yeah. If there was one thing that you could tell them right now to see it in a different light, to see the value in it, 
What is that one piece of information you wish to convey to them right now? It is all about how you take in information. So the defensive person sits, they look at the network, the indicators, whatever it might be, and they see that information, they know what it means. It is the exact same for an attacker. They look at information and they know what it means. They know how it makes a company vulnerable, just the way that that defensive individual knows how something has been attacked. It's they're one in the same thing. So it is. It's nothing more than than a way of taking in information and and reapplying it for the circumstances that you find yourself. And I think defensive people might make the best attackers at the end of the day because they know they know like statistically what's likely they know they know so much more than I do. <laughs> um, and so I think if they could read the book or go and you know find a blog post about it and understand the four laws and understand the skills, if applied correctly, they're actually the perfect attacker. They know how to avoid things, everything. I have faith in these defensive people. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Maxie, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to hop on the mics with us today. For the folks that want to stay up to date with you and all the incredible things that you have going on and get your book, what are the best ways that people can do that? I am on Twitter, although... Not often, but I, I browse. I'm on Instagram and LinkedIn too. LinkedIn's a really good place to find me and to message me because I will get back to you quickly. Excellent. We'll be sure to drop all of your social in the show notes and Thank a link you. to your book for everyone to check out. Maxie, it was a true pleasure and honor to have you on the show and we'll see everyone next time. Thanks, guys. If you found value in this content, it would mean the world to us if you shared it on social media, sent it to a friend, or talked about it over coffee. Thank you.